AI is going to be, you know, it's in sci-fi and in all of the media and literature and so on. AI is going to be the most transformative thing that we uh, are going to build. And we're actually real surprisingly close now. I think uh, everyone is very surprised at how much faster we've gotten here than, than maybe we expected in the last couple of decades. Uh, you know, there was a lot of, in the late 20th century, we expected to get to this like really quickly. All right, everyone. Another awesome day. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show, powered by Waxman, where together you and I and our guests, we get to dive deep. A lot of times the guests learn new things too, most of the time, but we come up with new ideas, new thesis. We ask the questions that are really hard to figure out how to actually bring this, these technologies that we're building to the next level. We tell stories of the old days, we laugh, we have fun, we get very deep, we talk about what's going on today, and we talk about the future. And I feel like through all of that, we come up with a lot of answers about how and why this movement came to be. What are some of the lessons that we can learn on a day-to-day basis, not just about the technology side of things, but kind of how people operate. And at the same time, we come out of good with good data and good insight and be able to answer the questions. For the last few months, we've been here and there chatting about IPFS. You guys have heard me talk about it. We've talked about Filecoin and the relationship there. We've we've had Dr. Pooja Shah a year ago, one of the, the other co-founders of the IPFS protocol. And lately, we've been coming up with more questions than we have answers to about how IPFS works, why it's so important. And then last week, they launched, similar to Ethereum's virtual machine, they launched the um, Filecoin virtual machine, which is a huge step forward. And today, to talk about why that's a huge step forward in the development of all of crypto and our whole industry and how it's going to change everything is Juan Bennett. Thank you for coming on the show. Juan, you're the founder of Protocol Labs an open source research development and deployment laboratory building protocols, tools, and services to radically improve the internet. Protocol Labs specifically works to democratize the web, and you guys work on IPFS, Filecoin, Filecoin Green, LibP2P, and and other projects at the same time. The IPFS has kind of been one of the groundbreaking protocols of our whole industry since going back to the invention of Ethereum, Bitcoin, Uniswap, and stuff like that. So, so thank you, Juan, for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Take me back to the beginning, because I know that a lot of the, the work that was done on IPFS kind of preceded, predated Bitcoin. Uh, it did not predate Bitcoin, but it, but say a lot of the works and networks that inspired IPFS was a, definitely predated Bitcoin. So this is like all the peer-to-peer networks like you know, BitTorrent or even Skype. It was very influenced by both Skype and BitTorrent in a way that where BitTorrent just showed what you could do with a scale of data distribution and bandwidth sharing around the world. And it was for a large, for, for a number of years, it was the largest user of traffic uh, worldwide and showed that if you aggregate the bandwidth of computers all around the world, you could actually have a really, really powerful computing network. And Skype did the same thing, but for telephony. And Skype did it as a, as a business and a, and a marketplace and so on. And, and both of those were super inspirational to, to IPFS. And so IPFS uh, got developed in uh, the earliest would be like the ideas would be 2013 or so. And then uh, 2014 is when, when the project started and we had the alpha ready in 2015. Um, so this was about like a year and a half before Ethereum, like three or four years after Bitcoin had, was kind of like growing and, and coming into its own and kind of getting, getting more mainstream adoption. 
And kind of the main goal set there is to kind of shift the the way we distribute content on the internet to from location addressing, which puts a lot of power on the people running the specific servers and websites that are hosting the information and to move it more to content addressing where you're trying to get the information and data from whoever is willing to serve it to you using hash linking. So hash linking is the is kind of like the the secret superpower that enables blockchains to work. Um, it's the same thing that makes the the Git version control system work and so on. So this is the idea of like being able to have connect two pieces of information using the cryptographic hash of one of them. And, and, and that time, is... Yeah. Oh, sorry? Uh, it, yeah, like that is just a super powerful uh, component because just like in Bitcoin, it gives you the ability to have this long set of transactions interlinked uh, that nobody can change and it's tamper-proof. You can do the same thing, but for but for all the files on the internet, for all of the data on the internet, for everything you view, for like all the websites, all of the data in those websites and so on. And if you build the web with that kind of architecture, then that puts power much more on users' hands and more, it sort of decentralizes the um, the power structures of the internet. Because today, like if you send a link to somebody on the internet, you're usually in that link, you embed the domain name of the website and that maps to specific servers that that organization is running, right? So if you give a link to say, you know, facebook.com slash mypicture.jpg, you're, you're telling the world, go find this picture, but like you always have to depend on whatever Facebook tells you. Uh, so Facebook could change that picture, could like relocate it, could serve something different in the future. And as you're sprinkling these links all over the web, you're creating kind of a stronger and stronger power for, for that party. If you instead could create links that just are not dependent on any, any of those authorities, but are just linked to your identity or your uh, name, uh, you know, imagine like your name using one of the blockchain-based domain name systems, like ENS, for example, then you could like, Post that picture or that information anywhere. Doesn't matter who's hosting it, as long as somebody's willing to post it and somebody's willing to serve it to you. And you remove that power power imbalance, and and you and you now control your own data and the way that you're linking it around the world. We're separating like two different things here, and I've talked about it a few times. It's this uh, long term style of storage, and then you have the the content delivery networks. Can you explain the difference between the two and where IPFS kind of fits in? Yeah. So. When you think about data in on the internet, you think of data being stored and distributed through you know lots of computers, like mil- millions of billions of computers around the world, run by many different parties. And so there's been you know several movements across computing history, like you know moving to the cloud, moving to the edge, and and so on. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like people are some set of service providers are setting up hardware and are willing to store and 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 serve information, and then developers on top of that uh, build applications that do some useful stuff with the data and kind of decide where to where to place it and how to serve it and whatnot. So what IPFS is, is a different way of addressing the information and moving it. So it gives a, instead of addressing things with just these kind of domain names mapped to IP addresses, because that's kind of how the HTTP web works, IPFS works with domain names mapped to the hashes of the content itself so that you can uniquely identify the information and anybody can serve it. So it's a, a way of like, instead of depending on specific parties for serving the information, you can allow anybody, anybody to serve it. And then underneath that, you can have many different kinds of service providers or storage providers that can serve that content. And in some cases with incentive structures, in other cases with you know more traditional web style incentive structures. But that's where other networks like say Falcon and, and so on fit in is, is to kind of create an incentive layer for 
for distributing the content for you. So, so think of IPFS as the addressing of like how do you locate the information and how do you get it? And kind of that corresponds to say HTTP. And then think of things like Filecoin as marketplaces where you can hire parties to store your data or serve it for you. Yeah. Um, and that corresponds to like Amazon S3 or something like that. The product is like very similar to to like deploying an S3 or something like that, going up to Amazon Web Services, which like I forget that no one realizes, but like a significant portion of the internet is hosted by Amazon. And, you know, it's not a bad thing, but we have to point it out because it's a huge like point of failure, but it's also like a centralized point of control. And yeah, you can still deploy like where your servers are going to be, but at the end of the day, your data is still somewhere and it can be censored. So I, I see that you guys work with the, the Holocaust Shoah Foundation, the Internet Archive for leveraging, you know, backing up content and stuff like that. Those are specific examples where there are countries in the world that would want to censor that data. Yeah, uh, and, and this is what drove me personally to uh, this movement in general, to Web3, and, and to work on these kinds of technologies. Today, there's just an enormous amount of power in the hands of a very small number of corporations and a very small number of people. And, you know, it, it gets worse. It's not just that, say, Amazon runs a huge fraction of the internet. It's like three or four companies run like 95 to 99% oh of God. the content distribution. It's like super crazy, right? So, and then you tack on the social networks where like there's, you know, four or five social networks that yeah. have most of the information processing. And so that means that like if any of these corporations, and they themselves might not, in some cases, they might have some interest in in um, not showing something or whatever. But more often than not, is is they just get some pressure from a government that dislikes something, or you know, they they as corporations can't usually. It happens uh, all day. Yeah, yeah. So so they they get orders to censor kinds of things, certain kinds of things to remove uh, to to deprioritize certain things in algorithms, and so suddenly really critical and important information doesn't get uh, distributed around the world. And and th this is kind of. From my point of view, it's like a, a, a few steps away from having like full, fully Orwellian states and Orwellian nightmare uh, conditions. And so we kind of have this point in time before this kind of reality fully sets in because, because this has been like a fairly recent development, yeah. right? Like, um, 15, like 25 years ago, this wasn't the case. Um, and so, and, and so I think like if we, if, if we work hard right now to shift in a different direction and create a much more decentralized, infrastructure for how we build all our applications, then we can put in some some significant rights into the network itself. You, you can build internet infrastructure that preserves human rights and, and guarantees them worldwide kind of across nations. And that would be extremely, extremely valuable to do. And so that's kind of what brought me to, to, this, uh, to this movement. Smart contract constitutions at the same time, like you know, you know what a smart contract is going to do and that could really keep equality because the constitution's built into it and uh, and you have a DAP. And then if anything needs to change, you you can force it where it's like you need almost every, you need almost full consensus for something to change. I don't want to move on from this conversation yet because what you're saying is the most important thing in the world. It's what got you into the space. It's why I got into the space at the same time. It's one of the most important things. And And you mentioned Orwellian. If you hadn't read 1984, guys, like you have to read this book now. And the scariest thing is like people, we all look for like this like censorship squeeze dictatorship that will just happen and we'll see it coming. And the scary thing right now, and Juan, tell me if I'm wrong, but the tools for various governments around the world to squeeze their citizens already exist. We saw that with in Canada with the trucker rallies, they froze all their financial bank accounts 
if you were involved in a protest during during the COVID lockdowns in Canada, we see it all the time in other countries around the world. I mean, it's it's insane. So what you're saying is the utmost important thing here. And and but and I just want to understand a little bit better. Is it just like if I write this this book, this this dissertation or something, and about democracy, and I'm in China, for example, when it's hosted on IPFS, is it where it's like I take a hammer and it's broken into like a million pieces and spread all over the world. But my, what, what, what I don't understand is like, can't the government then get the map of where all the pieces are? Yes, yeah, so, and, and um, uh, I want to return a little bit to like the Orwellian state thing in a moment, because I think it's, it's good to like paint a, paint a picture of what's possible. Um, to, the, to the specific question, the, the way that IPFS works is that when you write that document, you can get a cryptographic hash for it and use that as the addressing. And then anybody that hosts that can help reshare it. And so that means that it's not just a few servers out there, it could be millions. And so if some piece of information is really important, and it tends to be that some of the most important information tends to be quite small, you can just copy it millions of times around the web to millions of different devices or billions of devices, and then it gets shared and distributed from all of those parties. And so while many of the traditional, simpler ways of introspecting the internet, finding maps of who's serving what and whatnot, might still apply. You enter in this landscape where maybe if something is illegal in one nation, it is not illegal in another nation, right? So this happens a lot. Like you, you don't, you rarely get something that is disagreed upon uh, everywhere, and so you end up in a situation where at least information might be suppressed in one place, but it can be served somewhere else, and then parties can still go and find that information sure. in those in those locations. You keep going back to this routing thing, and I think that's where you're alluding to the Orwellian part of it. It, it, So like when the Syrian government shut off the internet, they didn't shut off, like they didn't delete the data. They just shut off the ability to route from WWW out of the country, right? So so explain that a little bit, please. Yeah, so there are many different kinds of censorship techniques. Uh, There's everything from like, yeah, changing how DNS resolves. So this is also what Spain did uh, in the Catalan referendum. And yeah, you, you, can, you can stop ra- uh, routing to specific uh, sites and so on. You can also like just shut down the the telecommunications infrastructure. You can like just literally shut off. There's a certain number of servers and so on that you can you can shut off. Now the good news here is that we are getting significant advances in two kinds of networks that are going to be much harder to uh, shut off in that way. One is satellite networks, so you know things like Starlink and others will enable you know, direct connectivity to ground stations, and those will be way harder to try to like uh, maliciously censor. And also local area Wi-Fi networks and, and other kinds of wireless, where um, it's not that hard these days to set up wireless infrastructure to run parallel networks where you don't have to rely on, on individual telecommunications giants. You can do things like, for example, Helium, I think it's a, it's a uh, solid network that is kind of pushing the, the, the boundaries of what this could, could look like. Um, I think we need a lot more work on this and a lot more uh, scale to these networks before we can see them uh, really operating. But you know, it wouldn't be, it's not another question to have like fully LTE powered, you know, 4G and 5G networks that yeah. are all crypto powered in, in, in the near term. I'm really excited that this podcast, The Charlie Shrem Show, is now powered by Waxman. I think I met the CEO, David Waxman, back in 2015 or something at an Ethereum meetup, and he told me that the future belongs to the fearless. And that is why they are producing the show right by my side. What an amazing team we have now. It's so amazing. You guys have been hearing some great updates. I've been following along. 
If you don't know, Waxman is the leading global strategy and communications firm advising the next generation of companies in Web3, disruptive technology, Bitcoin, crypto, fintech, artificial intelligence, and venture capital. Waxman's clients are ambitious leaders and businesses that are on the frontier of this whole new economy because they really do believe that the future belongs to us and we're the ones building it. With services across everything from digital marketing, public relations, social media, investor relations, financial communications, recruiting, and public affairs, they're helping companies and individuals like myself seize the business opportunities that we deserve, overcome challenges that we all are gonna face and achieve sustained success. Head over to Waxman to learn more. You guys are gonna love them. We have them in the show notes. Check it all out. It's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. That's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. Why haven't mesh networks taken off yet? Uh, so so mesh specifically is a little bit trickier. So like there was a period of time, I, I actually did a bunch of wireless research earlier on. Wi-Fi meshes didn't take off for a few reasons. One is the range of Wi-Fi is actually quite small. And so it ends up being just too hard to um, require that many operators. And it was also in a period of time where you didn't have ways of incentivizing a large-scale network of, of operators. Like if you, if you tried it today, I think it would be much easier to get going than, say, 15 years ago when, when it was relevant. But if you were starting today, you might as well just go for LTE as opposed to Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi mesh networks. And so it'll look kind of like a cellular network. So um, we are starting to get these wireless meshes, but they're not, they don't look the same way. They don't, they don't look like a Wi-Fi network that you connect to. They look like, like LTE cellular networks. Um, because that, that just kind of technology is not good enough that you can just go straight to straight to 4G and 5G. I live on like a small island with 500 homes. Can I like set up my own utility service, like internet utility using some sort of Yeah, network? totally. Like How you, you, you could get Starlink. So so you you get Starlink. I have then, one. Great, awesome. So then now uh, set up some. You, you probably use Helium. I think Helium is probably the, yeah. the best one right now, and you can you know set up Helium on top of that. So Helium. So there's a relationship between Helium and IPFS. Uh, nothing formal. I think a lot of the Helium community ends up using IPFS and and some of our some of our stack for things we related projects, but like not not um nothing very formal. I was gonna mention the on the Orwellian note. Oh yeah. It's kind of like one small way to kind of think about it is like, you know, even even without thinking about the future or like what future technology people might build, just think about the, the power that current internet infrastructure gives single corporations and single governments. Like you don't have to worry about like the largest governments in the world, like even small governments and even even relatively small corporations have a lot of power. You, you know, you have around 7 billion smartphones in the world today. Uh, you have like CCTV everywhere. You have satellite imagery that's getting higher resolution and more real time. You have ML models that can do massive amounts of data analysis and synthesis. You can do, you can have like, you have enough computing power to have full behavioral models of all humans on earth, right? Like you, you could have, some corporations can like literally run this for social networks where you have a behavioral model for participants and you like can guess what they're likely, like, are they likely to click on this ad or are they likely to like this particular piece of content? So just that same kind of technology can then start be deployed or used in other kinds of things. Like, hey, are you likely to think that the the, the latest round of policies are like not good? And are you likely to speak out against that and then start taking certain kinds of actions, right? And so it, we're starting to see deployed these kind of kind of social credit systems in, in China and in other places where you're starting to measure, they're starting to measure what people do and how people behave 
and starting to route that to economic outcomes. So like if you behave uh, somewhat poorly, uh, here poorly being defined by the not only, not just like the nation, but the regional governments, then you get docked on your credit system and then yeah. maybe you can't go on the credit. train or you can't travel and so on. So so that that like we're starting to see the beginnings of that. And so that coupled with like the, the degree of surveillance and the degree of like ML control points uh, to a, a, a like set of possible bad futures that we have to work hard to avoid. And so this is kind of like why uh, cryptography and uh, decentralized networks and baking in rights directly into the internet infrastructure is so important. It's to kind of stop all of those kinds of things from happening because you can build infrastructure that makes those kinds of things super, super difficult. It's almost like we have to create an alternative system at the same time, which is what we're doing to transcend the the one that's being built that's going to squeeze all of our rights. And I just hope that enough of the world uses it. And and this is where, you know, I think like the adoption of crypto and Web3 have been slower than, say, the social networks, but it's also really large. We're now at the, you know, 50 to 150 million people who have touched crypto and Web3 on, on different kinds of ways. And so... That's only like a few orders mounted more to till we get the whole world, right? And so I think it, it's it's trending pretty positively. It's just been slower than maybe most people wanted or expected from the social networks. The social networks kind of just grew so fast that it yeah. just set a different benchmark for what like success on on internet infrastructures look like. When you look at things like the cloud, like the cloud took twenty years to really get deployed. Like the earliest versions were in ninety five. It took another twenty years before like major major websites around the world. Where yeah, all, there was a big plateau with like the virtual private server worlds where you can go to random website yeah. and get like a VPS, you know, and deploy something somewhere. Yeah, it's yeah. It, and still then it was like, seemed like that was the end of it. Yeah. I think I'm paying somewhere $10 a month for a VPS from <laughs> early 2000s. Probably without, without like upgrading the the OS, so probably somebody already like infected it with bots or whatever. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Speaking of bots, are you looking at how GPT and AI will factor into... Yeah, totally. Uh, Totally. Look, I think um, AI is going to be... And we've known this for many, many decades. Like AI is going to be, you know, it's in sci-fi and in all of the media and literature and so on. AI is going to be the most transformative thing that we uh, are going to build. And we're actually real surprisingly close now. I think uh, everyone is very surprised at how much faster we've gotten here than than maybe we expected in the last couple of decades. Uh, you know, there was a lot of, in the late 20th century, we expected to get to this like really quickly. And so that then materialized. And so then everybody kind of became much more conservative in, in estimations. But I remember even 15 years ago, people thought this was just, you know, many decades or in a century or so away. And we're now actually quite close. So I think things like GPT-4 show just how powerful these models are. And they're going to be fully transformative to everything we do, like economically, socially, in terms of communications and so on, like the 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 level of capability here is, is so significant that it's going to rewrite how we operate. The question is just like which things for which things are going to go first and what things are going to have to change in, in sort of like in what orders. But we, we should expect that over the next five to 20 years, we're going to see more and more large scale shifts in all kinds of things economically and socially and so on. I'm just scared that between Bitcoin, crypto, AI, IPFS, sorry to, to jump it all in there, AR, VR, and then on top of that, the world's just becoming a easier to, to create 
influential populism type of place where like influencing millions of people is cheap and easy now, almost like you can go to a website and you can say, hey, I want to influence a million people on something fake. It's like, this is the price. It's so, people are like, it's so easy. Yeah. It's all lies. Like everything you see on, on TV and, and everything, like trust, but verify. It's all lies. We're already being lied to all the time. So how do you even know what's real and what's not? Yeah, I think I think I think we're in a in a especially a tricky period where we we these systems have gotten pretty powerful and so we are seeing their effects. But but I, I I'm actually quite optimistic. I think like th- there's like some like really good optimistic trends that you can look at that counterbalance that. So for example, today just vastly more people have access to way more information and knowledge and are leveling up their own understanding. And so just the fact that we're having this conversation and we are able to talk about this like you couldn't really say that 50 years ago, like not in the same way right. and not to the same number of people. And, and COVID did a lot of that too. COVID made people like forced to like learn things on their own. Yeah, exactly. Like that, that was a great moment where we saw the kind of like decentralized communication networks outpace the centralized media structures. And, you know, Twitter got it right in ways that all of the central centralized media establishment didn't. And way ahead of the curve, right? Like we're talking weeks and months ahead. And this is this is an area where like, I think that's very optimistic, right? I think similar kinds of I things you, yeah. couldn't have happened in, in the 50s, 80s, even 90s. Um, and so I think like the, we're just in this kind of weird in-between spot where we just have to build the the tools and systems that are going to enable us to diffuse knowledge globally to as many people as we can and equip them with the ability to discern what's what's true and what's not, uh, be able to form their own understanding of things, be able to enable them to be less manipulable, enable them to be more successful and economically relevant and so on. It, it, that's one of the things that I think is going to be very tough right now. Our entire economy is based on kind of like this very outmoded notion of, of labor and, and so on. And it's just going to, like AI, and this is where I think like the GPTs are going to have the biggest impact in the short term. We're going to see just whole ranges of, of professions to be totally reshaped. And in some cases, some people are going to be able to like learn the new tools and learn the new systems and it's just going to shift the shift the the um w- what their work means. In other cases, some some professions are just going to disappear. And it is it, it, I think we're just heading towards a model where like we, we have to change what we think of like I, I think seeing the economic models and economic systems globally have to adapt. And and we just are in a different we're in a different place than we were in the 20th century or 19th century. It's not pretty clear at all what that looks like. Uh, but I do think the area with the most economic experimentation is the crypto space. And, and here's where like people are asking like really interesting yeah. um, questions of how do you build societies and economies that, that just behave differently with, with different kinds of transactions, different kinds of interactions than traditional ones. There's so many things that be the way we, we can map relationships out too. It's not just like, the way we interact with governments and stuff like that. It's how we all work with each other on family relationships and things like that. No, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I, I love that you're so uh, strong in your belief on, on the promise of the technology as am I, but sometimes I can't help but get a little jaded because we, you know, we've over the years, we've just keep getting ahead of ourselves. But I guess that's a testament to the way to, to the talent that comes to our industry that just wants to build, build, grow and, and try crazy new things. And I would argue that without the incentive layer, none of this would work. Like, why does the token make everything work? Yeah, uh, incentives are key. Uh, at the end of the day, you have to model the economic flows, like the actual transactions that are happening and what the value flows are 
and be able to account them in some way to to make things work right. So markets just beat central planning in, in it. The, the way to maybe model it is like markets and currencies and these kinds of you know financial instruments are a distributed algorithm that in, that achieves much better fit to a very large dynamic changing environment. And that so far we haven't had remotely the same level of success with any kind of central planning algorithm, algorithmic structure. You know, like the famous version of this is like the, you know, the um, Soviet Union trying to do central, centrally planned economies and that, that worked up to a point and then it, then it collapsed and, and markets are just way more resilient. Now, now I think that this is going to be tested again with AI systems because you are able to do central planning at a different scale. But uh, I still think that the the way in which humans operate is much more decentralized and much more market oriented. A good example of this is like the the French pension system is the darling of the country. And it's a great it's a great system in which as much as you pay in over the course of your life, once you retire, you're entitled to half of your average salary. And it's a much better system than like the social security system. This is like a pay in, pay out system. A lot of people look at it as very fair, but also there's a lot of protests going on in France right now over like raising that minimum age. But a lot of people tell me that too, they believe that the system is filled with fraud, graft, corruption, and, and embezzlement. And, and so if you were to take a system like that and over decades, it's on a blockchain and you can see the incentive layer here, there's a perfect example of like how you just wouldn't have to have the trust anymore in centralized authority. Yeah, exactly. So the, the key thing here is getting to verifiability, right? Um, and, and it's like transparency through verifiability. You don't, transparency doesn't mean that you get to see everything necessarily because there are many good reasons to have privacy and really key things, right? Uh, oh. This is where like, you know, private money and so on is, is important too. Like you don't necessarily sure. want to broadcast all the information, but you want verifiability. And that's what's is so amazing and powerful about these modern blockchain systems, especially with zero knowledge proofs, that you can, you can create conditions and protocols and agreements and have mathematical expressions that verify everyone has behaved correctly, even even without having to see the, the underlying data. So you could have you know, a fully privacy-preserving pension system that doesn't divulge individuals' details or in, in any kind of undue way, but have the hard verifiability of what exactly is happening and who's getting what, and what, you know, that, that, that all the right rules yeah. are followed. Um, That's, you said it right there. You can verify that the rules are being followed, especially when you know what a smart contract or a DAP is supposed to do. There could be a constitution and everyone can verify. And that's why you see the technologies like ZK rollups and stuff, just because what they want to do is make the verification instant, right? Instead of having to yeah. wait like a full block or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think this, this is, and, and it extends to other kinds of protocols too, like you, you could encode what the pension system structure should be in, in this kind of zero knowledge algorithm and check that all of it is being performed correctly. That's, uh, that's the coolest thing right there. Like that right there, I think would be, would be a great next step. And not for like, maybe not the big like pension system, but there's got to be industries that like, what about title search, you know, like put, yeah. put all. Yeah, that's ridiculous. What? It's so wild. It's so ridiculous and wild that in, in, uh, in, in some, some states and some countries, like you still, you know, a piece of paper determines ownership and it's like, it's so wild. That's why imagine the, the biggest impediment to doing foreign investment is, pro is the property rights and sovereignty of your business or the property. Yeah. Imagine if you can go anywhere in the world and actually be able to do business, buy property, do things there. I mean, that would, it would just change. Every, imagine if people from those places could come and purchase property here. Like yeah. It would change everything. 
you know, I think like the adoption of these kinds of tools doesn't seem as important in, say, some of the most developed nations in the world where like yeah. you have a pretty good financial stack and a pretty good legal stack and so on. You're like, oh, well, you know, things work pretty well. You know, banks work pretty well. I mean, sure, there's bank runs on the crisis. So <laughs> maybe not that well, uh, but, but like relatively, relatively good. Uh, and then you compare it to most nations in the world and you're talking about a completely different landscape with yeah. uh, terrible economic structures, terrible legal system, n- no good judicial structures, like no way to enforce rules, like tons of corruption. Um, that's just completely hidden, like not re- not reported or talked about at all because it's just so in- embedded and inherent in the system. It's just so easy to to manipulate. And so like you, you end up in a situation where like, yeah, no, no, all of these tools and, and systems are going to kind of greatly advance the global condition. Like, yeah. uh, it's very, very significantly. And, and it's, it's often kind of hard to understand why they matter so much when you when you have it so good, in a sense. Well, if you've listened to this episode, now you know. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Juan, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. No, th- thanks for having me. Yeah.